Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Good evening, listeners, brave navigators of the enigmatic and the concealed. Have you ever felt the pull of the unanswered, the allure of the mysteries that shroud our existence? For more than a decade, a unique comic publisher has dared to dive into these mysteries, unafraid of the secrets they might uncover. This audacious entity is Paranoid American. Welcome to the mystifying universe of the Paranoid American podcast. Launched in the year 2012, Paranoid American has been on a mission to decipher the encrypted secrets of our world. From the unnerving enigma of MK Ultra mind control to the clandestine assemblies of secret societies. From the awe-inspiring frontiers of forbidden technology to the arcane patterns of occult symbols in our very own pop culture. They have committed to unveiling the concealed realities that lie just beneath the surface. Join us as we navigate these intricate landscapes, decoding the hidden scripts of our society and challenging the accepted perceptions of reality. Folks, I've got a big problem on my hands. There's a company called Paranoid American making all these funny memes and comics. Now, I'm a fair guy. I believe in free speech uh, as long as it doesn't cross the line. And if these AI-generated memes dare to make fun of me, they're crossing the line. This is your expedition into the realm of the extraordinary, the secret, the shrouded. Come with us as we sift through the world's grand mysteries, question the standardized narratives, and brave the cryptic labyrinth of the concealed truth. So strap yourselves in, broaden your horizons, and steel yourselves for a voyage into the enigmatic heart of the paranoid American podcast, where each story, every image, every revelation brings us one step closer to the elusive truth. Welcome back. Another episode. Right to it. Here's Emily Moyer, one of the coolest people to talk to about a whole range of a million different topics. And we're only going to cover maybe like 999,000 of them today, but we're not going to get to all a million. So anyways, Emily has agreed to do just like a like a four day power session. We are not going to stop talking for four days straight until we cover every single issue that there is to talk about. So strap in get some water get some snacks let's start and and we actually have some live viewers from guinness world records i believe that are live in the stream wave to the guinness book people and we're going for a record so i'm just kidding i'm just kidding uh i'll I'll keep it to a normal length um but emily I just want to uh, say again welcome to paranormal american podcast here we'll take you out of the, the frame i just like doing that at the beginning that was fun. I love it. <laughs> so so tell people who you are, what you're about, where they can find your stuff and how much it joins the cost of cult. <laughs> well, first of all, that was an all. I loved the, your whole two minute intro and, and the way you brought me in. And the idea of you and I talking for four days straight sounds <laughs> like for viewers, that would be terrifying. But I don't doubt that you and I could probably power through that. We'd need breaks. We'd need like power naps, but I think it was, that's not even something that would phase me. 
Right. And, and, and I wonder how far, like, I wonder if we were to, if we were to take on that challenge, how far into like, uh, getting to the bottom of anything we would come or would we just generate 10 million new rabbit holes that need exploring and, right and that <laughs> one. it would but, be that one but it sounds fun and it sounds like you know if 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 we you know find ourselves in some sort of strange scenario where like you and I are either locked in the same bunker together or in our own separate bunkers with not much else to do other than like an internet connection to each other that we can try that someday. <laughs> Let's figure out reality. We're just going to figure out this reality thing. And <laughs> totally. As, um, as silly as that sounds on its surface, though, if you believe the conventional history of like uh, Rene Descartes, which is I, I always bring him up. I'm like obsessed with this dude. Even though he was kind of a jerk, he like tortured dogs and stuff, but he apparently was able to uh, derive the concept of like photons and light and optic nerves and everything. Now, I'm sure he was cutting people open and like looking at all the stuff and that's where he derived a lot of that too, but he through reason alone was able to surmise things that weren't even provable at that point. So there is a there is a reality in which we could just talk for four days and actually discover truth. But there'd there'd really be no proof. That's the that would be the biggest burden and curse of it all, right? Even if you knew you had it, there'd be absolutely no way to prove it until you had some kind of magical technology that could then measure right, and okay. say, no, you're objectively correct now. Yes, to me- to measure it and then re- replicate it over and over and over again in the exact same way. Yeah. So actually, the point what you just brought up is it's interesting that you brought that up because it's kind of where I'm at with a lot of things that I'm sort of looking at. So we'll, we can return to that if you like, but so that I don't um, stray away from what you asked me to do. Um, I don't so remember I, what I asked. So let's you just asked me to tell people thread. about myself, which doesn't oh, feel like right. that's even necessary. <laughs> uh, two things. Uh, congratulations on your podcast. Um, I you. very rarely I'm like, oh, I hope so and so invites me on their podcast. But in your case, I have I have been hoping for an invitation. You are well liked and respected by not just myself, but by all of our colleagues. And I'm you are like a total nerd on the things that you're into. And the only motivation I see behind all the things you do is a desire to laugh, have fun, entertain, but most of all know. So I really appreciate that. And I'm happy to be here with you today. Um, I, my venture through whatever the fuck this is, has been like a long and winding one. But at this point, I find myself kind of in that same situation of like, I'm trying to like solve the puzzle. I'm looking for answers, but I'm not doing it to the exclusion of like enjoying being here and having a good time with my friends and whatnot. And I also don't think that just because something resonates for me or I feel that it is so that it means that we all need to come to agreement about it and that everyone must subscribe to, to my version of reality. I think, you know, the point of telling compelling stories is to get people to like trust in their own observations and experiences of reality and have confidence in that and be able to learn from each other's experiences and stories and research and the way we see things and whatnot. And, um, so that's where I'm at with with what it is. Like I was, you know, I think the, when I first started podcasting, it was like I'm going to expose him, Caltra, or so, I, I don't know, something like that. And and now it's just like we live in this ever shifting, um, completely flexible, morphable set of realities that we are moving through. And 
I'm just trying to understand <laughs> something about how it works, right? Because it's interesting to me, not because I think there's anything to be done about it necessarily. So um, in pursuit of that, I do a variety of different podcasts on my own with guests, with other co-hosts about a number of topics. And sometimes I feel like I should narrow my scope so I can go deeper. But then I also have come to the realization that the variety of things that I'm interested in and the sort of eclectic sources that I that I observe and interact with have been part of what kind of give me a unique worldview and a unique perspective. And so if I were to stop doing that and just zero in on one thing, I think some of the some of that would would go away. So I probably won't do that. Um, but basically, I'm just like having my own choose your own adventure experience and talking about it with people along the way, comparing notes with others who are doing the same and, you know, trying to, but, but even gets to the end of the day, I'm trying to solve the puzzle. If there is one to solve, I'm not even sure of that sometimes and have a good time doing it. And, and, you know, I guess improve myself in terms of my own ability to, to be in coherence or in alignment and, and, you know, like have what I do match what I say, I think. Right. And, and that's it. And, uh, and you can find me at my website is emilyseemoyer.com. It really just kind of links to other things. I'm on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash off planet media, um, emilymoyer.locals.com and rockfin.com forward slash emilymoyer. Um, I have projects with other people as well with their own sort of pages, um, you know, you can join the cult for as little as five dollars, or and uh, or or up to up, up to way more than that, depending how steeped in the ideology of this nonsense you want to become. <laughs> what, what, fla- what flavor Kool Aid does your cult have? Do you have Sharkberry? Well, I'm a I'm I'm a cocktail mixologist, so my Kool Aid is fucking delicious, <laughs> right? My Kool Aid is more like smoky old fashioned, and you know, uh, you know, spicy margarita, whatever, right? So. Um, yeah, I don't, I, there's not really a Kool-Aid. Like I encourage uh, disagreement, right? Like, like it's nice when we agree, but it's totally unnecessary and sometimes more fun when we don't. And what I really like is when I love being challenged and I love when somebody can create, like tell me what their logic, their narrative is, right? And me be able to sort of follow what their logic train is and be like interested in it and entertained by it. Whether or not I agree with it or it opposes mine or whatever is kind of not the point. It's like to be able to make your mind flexible enough to be able to see things the way other people see them and not feel threatened by that. Right. And so that's what I encourage in my in my community. I, I it's in our community. A lot of other people help me. Um, and I, I, I certainly hope that there's not a single person out there that agrees with everything I say, because that would be terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, would you be scared of your clone? Like, like not like a literal clone, but like if you met someone that like had all the exact same beliefs, would it? Would you like wonder what they were up to twenty four seven? It bothers me, right? Like it, like it's one of those. Um, I would, I would be suspicious. I would be paranoid for sure. Like I have, I, I have had enough strange experiences of <clears throat> sort of meeting myself face to face or other versions of myself in different conditions and whatever. And uh, sometimes it's disturbing. Sometimes it's amusing, but like I, if I, I, I don't want to live in a world where there's another person who thinks exactly what I think. Cause it's just not like, that would be super boring. Like, I, I mean, maybe that is the whole, like, maybe that is the answer. Maybe like 
I am the only person that exists in the entire world. And that is fucking boring. So I have entertained myself by imagining all these different characters or people to come along and, and, and challenge my views and, and, you know, play different roles and whatnot. And that same thing would be true for everyone else, including you, that we're having to hallucinate all of this conflict and diversion and, and whatever the fuck this is we're living in to like, entertain ourselves because we're here on a desert island bored by ourselves. <laughs> like that reality is just one big game of why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? You know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Like you see that, you know, in some of those, like uh, some of those scenes from um, fight club, right. Where they, you know, yeah, great, great reference for that. You get the peek in that, like these two people are really one in the same and this person is flogging themselves. Right. I think there's a lot of truth. I mean, there's there was so much truth uh, dropped in that film. I remember the first time I saw it, I was um, it was it's it was one of the most like significant films in terms of affecting the way I saw the world and the way I saw myself. And I was at a particularly tumultuous point in my life. And it sort of started to explain some things to me that that. Quite honestly, I'm still getting over. <laughs> I'm right, dude. I'm right there with you, and I, I won't get too much of like a personal anecdote on this one. But I, I distinctly remember being absolutely hammered at like two in the morning, and I was—I don't know when it came out. I want to say I was like 15, like probably wasn't even 16 yet. And I remember being absolutely like hammered, couldn't even open my eyes, could barely even like understand what was going on. But the movie was playing because someone had put it on, like you know, earlier than. In the evening, and I remember like opening my eyes up every once in a while and being like, "This movie's good." Like, remember to watch this movie like later, and I did, and it was uh, a huge pill. I don't know what color pill Fight Club might be—the pink pill. I don't know, um, but I remember it, it introduced me to the concept of subliminal messages in like a very practical and subversive way, like f- like using subliminal messaging to fight back against this thing and then using you know like what was it like the fat of rich people to sell back to the rich people and like all of these weird juxtaposed like inverted ways of like getting back at it but it was like look what they're doing to you now use those exact same tools and get back at them and that's a really juvenile summary of it but i like that's resonated with me to this day like it's influenced almost everything that i do i think and i still remember not necessarily the first time I saw it, but I remember like being drunk and remembering, Hey, this is like really cool. Like what's happening right here. I have no idea what's happening, but I like something registered, like go back and watch it. So that was, that was an awesome movie. So it's one of the, if you like, I'll, I'm happy to share what my experience with that movie is and yeah, why yeah. I was so affected to it, which is very different than what yours is. But I'm what sure. you're saying is true too. That is there. And that is like a very uh, important and valid way perspective to view it from. And, and I can see how that would be uh, equally as effective or at sort of, you know, like, it affected you in the same way that what, how I perceived it affected me. Right. I didn't even know it was the same person until I had seen it like four or five times. Like I'm very slow when it comes to that kind of stuff. On some (laughs) level me too. Yeah. Right. So first of all, I want to say this is one of the very few occasions where I think the movie is better than the book Uh, fight club. I've read the book um, and I can't think of any other uh, book movie scenario where I would say that. 
right? But in this case, I do think that 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 it's true, and partially because the filmmaker was so good and the acting was so good that it just brought so much to it. But I maybe I, The Shining, maybe The Shining. I haven't seen The Shining, so okay. uh, and I, or read the book, so I can't I can't say. But uh, you're probably. Your point is probably right. I, I think I like your assessment of things, even when I disagree. So your point point is probably correct. I'm a tastemaker in the conspiracy world. What can I say? Yeah, I like it. No, no, I, you like you, I, you like I am. I don't know what your what your thing is. Like if you're a, a smoker or a drinker of, or if you're a drinker, is it of whiskey or coffee or what it is? But I imagine you just kind of like sitting back and taking in the things that you like and appreciate and thinking about, you know, like the finer points of what this means. You're definitely a taste maker um and i like your uh, i like your cartoons too your comics um thank you but, thank uh, you this is about you let's hear about okay <laughs> uh so anyhow um okay so i first saw this movie in 2001 and i was again it was like i wasn't paying close attention i wasn't like oh i'm gonna sit down and watch this movie i was laying on the couch at my mom's house in ventura and uh i don't know for some reason i decided to watch this movie right and like i had just come through and was still in like the uh, very strange series of things going on in my life i had just moved back to los angeles from austin the first time that i had lived in austin and uh, the first experience in Austin for me, which is which is where I live again now, but the first experience in Austin to me was like a really deep dip into the the rave scene and to um, really ongoing drug use and party partying, and also like finding myself like towards the center of a scene as opposed to just someone who uh, it dallied around the edges or engaged occasionally or whatnot. Like I, um, the party scene here at that time was, was very happening. And um, I was going to parties many times per week in clubs and after parties and whatnot. And for the first time, like in my life in a social setting, there was um, like I, I, there was a lot of attention being paid to me because I was a break dancer and it's not that common that there's a female break dancer, um, uh, like at least in the rave scene at that time. Right. Like I, there was, and it was, uh, uh, when I was living in Los Angeles, I occasionally went to parties, but that was kind of separate from, from dancing for me. Like I went a few times with friends and then when I was here, I really liked the scene. And so I was really going all the time and, and, and like, working on my dancing in that sort of scenario and whatnot. Right. So like, I kind of had an identity that was a little bit different than what had been my whole life in Los Angeles, but I found myself partying quite a bit and I found myself having some really strange experiences that were not explainable to me by simply drug use. Right. And especially because a lot of the really strange experiences happened away from the the partying what happened when i was uh in my apartment by myself right kind of things and and some of them were so strange that like i was never going to tell anybody about them right and then i was what so but i you know i started to kind of fall apart 
And um, I moved back to Los Angeles and I was, it was not, I thought going back to Los Angeles would renormalize life, but it, it didn't. I had like poked through the veil of something accidentally or intentionally. I'm not quite sure. And I was, it was, it was bothersome to me. And when I saw this movie, I felt like, oh, this kind of matches some of these weird experiences that I had where like, I seem to have some missing time. I seem to remember having encounters with people that they claim to have no memory of. Right. I have memories of being places that like, I, it's very clear in my mind, but I can't find them in physical reality. And some of those types of things were being presented in a way there. And um, I remember calling my therapist a few, like like a few days after I saw the movie, or maybe it was like the next week I was going to see her. And I started saying that this thing that I had been trying to explain to you for like a couple of weeks, like a couple of months since I'd been back in Los Angeles that I couldn't quite explain in a way you could understand. Like, I think I can start to explain it because like something in this movie helped me to sort of arrange it in a different way that make my, might make some more sense to you. Right. And so I explained to her, she watched the movie and I'd say like, from that day forward, I have been um, like uh, uncovering um, things about myself and my life um, in, in a way that like now we would maybe refer to as like having had some, um, some interaction with like projects or like off the books kinds of activities that go on sort of hidden in plain sight. I did not know at that point, like uh, it would be five years later that like uh, in, a, in a, or four years later that in a class when I'd gone back to school, the teacher brought up the term MK ultra and like it jolted me in a way that like was surprising to me. Right. Um, but at the, at the time that I was starting to discover that like there was maybe some sides to myself that I, you know, wasn't quite in control of or aware of, um, I hadn't heard of it. Right. Um, but that from that moment on, I've been trying to nail down some holes and some, some strange things that have gone on in my life. And I can honestly say that I don't know if I would ever have talked about it to another person. If like that movie didn't give me an example for someone to go look at, to explain what I mean. You could have saved lots of money. If you just like went to your therapist or like, watch this movie, we're going to skip the next few sessions. This thing I've been trying to explain for weeks, just watch the movie. You'll get it. And then it'll cost you what, like five bucks for a matinee instead of hundreds of dollars. In <laughs> yeah. Right. But I mean, yes, on one level, but that struggle of trying to explain to another person what you mean or what your experience was, I think is actually part of, of understanding it yourself. So like the, the, bar that I set for myself now, like in podcasting or in sharing stories, whether it's about like research I've done or theories I have or explaining my own experiences and what I think they mean is until I can explain what, what I'm talking about to a, a person of reasonable intelligence who has like some understanding of some of the same topics that I do, what I mean or what I experienced or what I think in a way that they can understand and is meaningful to them. And by meaningful, I don't mean they have to agree or think I'm right, but they can, they now have something to examine and look at and come back to me and give me feedback on that I can also understand. And if you can't 
you know, sort of, this is just my opinion. I'm sure other people have different ways of seeing it, but until I can explain it well to someone else, I don't understand what I mean. And so that either means that I'm wrong or that there's like, I need to uh, think about it more. I need to integrate whatever I think the, 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 the occurrence was or the process was on, on, on a deeper level before I have anything meaningful to add to the conversation about it. Now, saying things out loud and getting it wrong or bumping up against walls where you're like, yeah, that doesn't make sense or whatever. That is part of the process as well. Like I think that we, um, we have very definite ideas of what we think reality is. And when something happens that starts to break those down, like it, it isn't just like we have a clean, clear, new answer, right? Like there's this whole sort of myriad of perception that opens up. And I think it's a while. I mean, you know this just from people whenever they go through anything like traumatic or anything that is like on some way really a departure from the norm for them, right? How they understand the experience evolves over time. And at a certain point, they have an idea if they've done their work, an idea of what it was and like where where to put it in their, in their life or their story about themselves. Right. Um, and the same thing is true with dealing with this information. I feel like this information, not disinformation. It sounded for a second, like I said, disinformation, but my opinion has changed a lot over the years on, on topics. Right. And part of it is not just that new evidence has come forward or whatever, but like I've, like moved around the room and looked at things from different angles at a much higher level than I did when I, when I first started talking about this stuff. And when you do that, your, your, you know, your perspective does change, maybe not totally. Right. But you see things from different angles and then the way that you talk about it or the way that you sort of deal with where, what space that occupies in your mind is different. Right. But yeah, that movie was the start of the, um, you know, like, oh, like this is a phenomenon that actually exists because if another person is talking about it, they must have some experience with it. Right. Whereas before I thought this was just like something all in my mind and I couldn't talk about it because it was so weird. No one would understand. So, so yeah, very meaningful movie for me. Well, there's also something really magic about creative works where you can blend, you can blend things that don't necessarily make sense in like a linear, rational world. It's like a comic book or a movie, just like you said, a two hour movie could do a better job of explaining something that you were trying to put into like normal language for weeks and probably yeah. longer than that in your own head. And this is actually something that applies to writing comics or stories or movies. It also like I, I do software development. That's what I like my really thing that I've been doing my whole life. And that's the exact same philosophy that always works for me is that when someone wants something or you want to work on a project, if you can't explain it in simple English terms first, then your idea is either incomplete or it's wrong or what's happening, which I think is at the really the crux of this is that we don't the language that we use to share information with each other is not natural. It's the farthest freaking thing from natural. Uh, like, like it's a true technology invention departure from nature in a good, in good ways and bad ways. But one of the bad ways is that all of a sudden you assume that because someone can't formulate a proper explanation of something that whatever their experience is, is invalid or somehow lesser than, and really what we're doing is like, we first experience it and you know everything that you felt and everything that goes into it. But the process of them breaking all that down 
into little objective statements that you can then give to somebody else for them to digest. It forces you too to break things down into objective little parts and not necessarily everything that happens in our heads is completely objective. So every time you decide on a word to use, you're sort of like collapsing a function, right? The function is like this open-ended, it could be anything, any number of them. But once you pick that word, that word means something. And then the word that you picked determines what the next word that you pick is going to be. And it keeps going. We're basically big uh, AI chatbots that are just like constantly searching for the next word and kind of forgetting what happens before that. So I I really... the. This isn't as as fun maybe as like reptilians and Bigfoot and and thrill oxide, but I really do think this is like one of the more important things is for people to think in these terms. Like if I can't explain this in a just regular English sentence to another person, then maybe my thought isn't complete or maybe go into a, a room by yourself and hash it out before. Yeah, you go into like a big you know, chat room of like a hundred people and then just start dropping stuff that's based on like a feeling and then not being able to back it up. Not because you're wasting their time, but because maybe you're wasting your time because you're not even sure what you think yet. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, one of the phenomenon that I've been experiencing over the course of the last 20 plus years, right, is people who used to think I was crazy like now are willing to take a look at what I'm talking about, whether I'm talking about my own personal story or whether I'm talking about what's going on in the world. And some of those people are family members or longtime friends or whatever. And it isn't so much that like they've woken up or the events of the world have now convinced them that their opinions before were wrong. It's that I have done, I think, a good job of really working hard on like uh, caring about what I'm saying enough to like, to try and to, 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 to strip, to, to clarify my thoughts and then clarify the way I'm able to explain them to people. So when someone like my dad, who's a very educated man, right. And who has very different opinions about things going on in the world than I do can look and go, okay, she has been working on like this information, whether it's her research or her understanding her own experiences for this long, right? Like the amount of care that I've gone into, like not leaving any stone uncovered and then trying to come back and find ways to explain it to him so that he can understand and to correlate it to things that I know he does understand or care about or whatever, like this person is serious. And so I'm willing to take a look at what she's saying. And that isn't like, well, we would love to think that, oh, people are waking up or whatever it is. The most meaningful way that you can like affect people's like desire to care about what you're talking about is by taking time and care yourself and working on how you present the information that's important to you and not just splattering it out there and then not feeling like you need to follow up and make it more concise and work on it and find different ways for people to understand it. If what you're saying is important, like find a way to communicate it to people that will, you know, allow them to, to care. And, you said that you got really heavy into like the rave scene mm-hmm. and and as you were talking, especially as you compared it to MK ultra and losses of time and like meeting mm-hmm. people, the first thing I started thinking of was 
maybe Operation Midnight Climax, where they were, you know, giving drugs to just random people and seeing what would affect their, you know, um, their behavior based on that. And then the hate Ashbury, where the CIA would just like set up houses and it's like, hey, you can just come and chill in this house and do drugs or do whatever you want. Safe place. Just, you know, there might be a guy in the room recording you and taking notes, but just don't pay attention to him. I mean, would it be so far fetched to think that maybe like these underground raves that were going and, you know, uh, accepting, you know, like the miners, many miners would show up and just be doing all sorts of drugs and dancing all night. Who's to say that wasn't like a, a CIA operation where they were just recording and observing, you know, how these drugs that were mainly researched and brought to the public by intelligence agencies, how they had an effect in these bigger social settings. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on this and it has like, you know, morphed and changed and shifted over time. Like I, you know, first started going to raves in the mid to in the late and mid to late nineties. Right. And I'm still very actively involved in the underground dance music scene. Like I am very much more selective and specific about what I like and what I want to, to listen to or do or participate in. And I go less, you know, frequently, right? Like there was a time when I'm, you know, I went out three, four or five times a week. And now like, you know, if I have, if I can get a few good parties a year, I'm, that's good for me. Like yeah. if I have a great night, then it's like, wow, that's satisfying for quite a long time. Right. Like, just like when you have, you know, when you have a satisfying experience, it's like, I'm going to relish this one for a while. And like, you know, not kind of go and, and do another one until like, I'm feeling that pull again. Right. Whereas before it was like social, I wanted to be at everything. I didn't want to miss anything and all that kind of stuff. Right. So, um, yes, I think that, um, the all sort of all music scenes, right. Have, uh, uh, this is true of on some level, right. That, that they're being either created, uh, for, and then observed or, if they are sort of um, organic in their, their, uh, their, uh, you know, appearance, the way that they've come up later, people figure out that something interesting is going on here and we should go either observe or, and then after we've observed, decide if there's anything to do about it, what can we learn? Can we manipulate it? Can we this, that, or the other thing, right? Um, the dance music scene is unique and there's many, many like different segments of the dance music scene. It's not like one cohesive, coherent, unified type of thing. There's like a very commercial, you know, level of it. And then there's a very, very underground level of it. And then there's everything in between. There's many different styles of electronic music that each have their own scenes and flavors built around them. There's a club scene. There's, you know, there's, there's many, many permutations and each sort of allows for different possibilities. Right. Um, and so I, I can't answer the question as to whether this was created or discovered, right? Like if, if someone in intelligence or, uh, you know, a military contractor or something else, you know, uh, came up with this idea or whether this occurred naturally. And then, you know, somebody's like, Oh, look what these people are doing over here. Right. Let's go play with this. Um, but there are so many things to be, uh, gleaned, observed, learned from, from the experience that people have with not just music, but with frequency and stimulation in general. And, um, 
operating in an environment that is that dynamic, right? That it's impossible that that's not happening, (laughs) right? And so I think we shouldn't limit ourselves to like one idea of what is going on there. And I think that in the, there was like, you know, there was an oversimplification when people first started questioning. And I probably participated in this oversimplification uh, when people first started questioning what was really going on with, you know, raves or electronic music in general or whatnot. Um, And then, you know, sometimes when like a narrative that strikes uh, people in a certain way, like in a similar way that narratives about, you know, child trafficking or whatever strike people, people want to hold on to that narrative and it starts to frame everything they see like around that. And it, it is either a long time or a lot of work. And in some cases it never happens that they are willing to sort of step away from that perspective and start to look at it for some, to, you know, from some other angles to see like what else could be going on here. Um, and I think that, uh, there is, imagine it like, um, a university, right? That has lots of buildings. And in those buildings, there are lots of classrooms or labs. And in those labs, there's several desks. And in each place, like different experiments and different things are going on. And some have a lot of attention on them. And some are just someone really tinkering around and no one really cares what's going on um, until someone does and whatnot. And it's very much the same thing with any of these sort of counterculture or outside the norm scenes. But there's almost no occasion where I don't start scratching around or the surface of something and find like a lot of the same, when I say players, I don't mean like the same person exactly, but the same whiff of like this company or that technology, or this person has parents who work for this, or there's always that there. And so then the question becomes, is this, is this like some, you know, I don't know if malevolent is the term, but is this some experience that's being directed or is this something that it's like, all right, well, kids are going to do what they're going to do and we'll just make the things available for them to do that. And then we'll look and see what happens and we'll like collect information from that. I don't know. Right. But what I do know is that you also can use that environment to study things about yourself, other people like, you know, various uh, technologies, both like physical and metaphysical that we exist with in this world and start to understand various ways that things can work um, and make yourself sort of <clears throat> the, um, the, the, your own experiment, right? Your own sort of, that's the one thing is like, we definitely have the right as human beings here. We're all here. We can do what we want with our bodies and our consciousness. Right. And there's, and that is, if that's all you're doing, if you're just doing it with yourself and to your, to yourself, that's moral, right. You have a right to understand what's going on inside of you and around you. um, As long as you're not interfering with other people. And so I use it for that opportunity. I mean, when someone says like my body is a temple, can you not do experiments in a temple? Like, isn't that what transubstantiation is all about? You know, you're like doing some alchemical work in that temple. Who's to say that 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 can't be the same thing with like neon glow sticks and, you know, like cat paw uh, or like cat ear headbands and stuff. And and I like your analogy of like a university and it's got all these buildings and stuff. And also that there's this spectrum that goes from super commercial to like the underground. So in the, in the late nineties, let's say that at the peak of whatever you considered your career as, as like a, you know, like a raver to be, 
what was like the most underground top secret, you know, in the basement of the university stuff that that was going on? Like at the peak, like at the peak of it. I mean, at the peak of it, I didn't know all the things I know now. So, like, it's really hard for me to like. I well, guess in, in retrospect, if you were to think back and be like, "Wow, that I was part of something that was like super deep," or I got to witness this key moment that nobody even realized. Like, you know, I saw the guy invent, you know, candy flipping for the first time. I don't know. So, I would say that like the the couple of things, right? Like, I definitely observed um, intelligence interaction and interference. Um, in 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 the party scene, right? And I definitely like know some of those players, right? And also like could clearly see how like things were compartmentalized, and that like someone thinks that they're doing one thing, and they don't quite understand how what they're doing is being used for something else, and then the way that they will justify. The, the, the way that they kind of refuse to see it or justify their actions once they discover that something is going on. And, and it, it is pretty interesting to watch that. So I, I definitely saw um, the scene here in Austin get pretty infiltrated um, by some, some le- level of law enforcement or intelligence agencies in this weird way where it felt like they were at some point they were, involved in the, the, the throwing of the events, right? Like you have that. any specific examples that you'd be comfortable sharing? So like, there's definitely, uh, there's been definitely people who were um, party promoters that were throwing parties that were in charge of large scale events that were doing things that were clearly acting as like informants for, uh, for, for law enforcement or intelligence agencies. Um, and they weren't just like some off to the side person. It was usually like somebody with like very large pole. Right. Um, and I can't, I don't have, I didn't have the eyes then that I have now. Right. And it's that a lot of information has been scraped from the internet about some of that stuff. So I can't easily go back and look and, 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 and make more sense of it. But, um, you know, it's, it's really expensive to do events and you can ask anybody who is a, um, small time remote promoter or small time person who throws parties that it's almost impossible to make money. Right. And so when you are seeing large amounts of money come into a scene and being unclear on where that's coming from, right. Like, you know, like I know how hard it is to pull it it, for, for people who really care about this to pull off a good event. Right. And so even people who are like the most true to the music and and the sound and their vision of things and whatever, like oftentimes have to take money from people that, you know, they they would prefer to not have to go asking for money from. And so then when you scale that up to the size of of events that some of the, that we're we're going now, everything is really festival based, right? There isn't really a rave scene anymore. Now there's an underground and a festival scene. Whereas before there was like this thing called the rave scene that was kind of bigger than the underground scene, but smaller than the festival scene. Right. So the amount of money that's going into all of this, like doesn't just show up, from people that don't have agendas that aren't only about making money. Right. So, um, but the, 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 the biggest thing for me is the, the 
experiences that I had at the Austin City Music Hall, right, um, which is uh, it's no longer there. It is now the proper hotel, which like rumor has it that like Elon Musk might live there at least part time. Right. And there's like an apartment section of it. And it's very interesting where it's located. And when I was going to the Austin City Music Hall, I didn't understand like the all the things I do now, but I didn't even know what was behind the Austin City Music Hall. And that is uh, uh, the Austin City Power Plant and Shoal Creek, which is like a huge bed of limestone. Right. And and some of the other things that were sort of in the area. Like I was just like going to the place, parking, going to the party. I wasn't like exploring the area around it. And now it's completely different than it was then. But I would say there in the late 90s and early 2000s, I had my first what I would consider to be like outside of time or outside of body events that um, I've now been able to sort of like circle back on. Right. Um, In terms of like I now understand things like the gateway experience, I understand. And whether people think that that was like uh, that, that um, Robert Monroe uh, is good or bad or what the military or CIA or whatever is doing with that. Some of the processes that are described in there make sense. And lots of people have, have been able to experience that, but, you know, basically I think what is over there is like some sort of interesting soft spot or vortexy portal kind of thing that allows for uh, some degree of, of distortion of like the space time continuum, because I had experiences there that don't make sense that connect me to my time in Austin now. Right. And, and I started having some of these weird experiences immediately when I moved back here in 2021, where um, things that like visions or ideas or information that I seemed to grab out of the ether back in the late 90s or 2000s, the moment that would explain it was happening then in 2021. And it was in that particular area, like all of these experiences are in a specific defined geographical location, right? And when I look and see all the things that are there now, Right. I'm like, oh, these people, they know what this is and they all want to be stacked right here. And they're using this to sort of, you know, their advantage for like a variety of things. But, you know, back then it was a bunch of kids going there, listening to this music, like having it with a lot of sound and a lot of light and a lot of drugs and having all kinds of like fascinating and crazy experiences that at the time we thought were just our trips. Right. But um, the trips are different in different places. Right. And so and there was definitely some kind of like it's like an amplifier or an accelerating kind of effect. I talked about this quite a bit on Esoteric America. I did a couple episodes with them last year about uh, my, my experiences here in Austin. where I went into sort of depth about that. Um, but I do think that sound and, and light and then things that sort of facilitate our ability to pay attention at a different level than we normally do. So either defocalize or hyperfocalize are probably better places to look for the kind of experiences that, um, that, that we think are like about big machinery or, you know, something different, right? Like I do think that uh, um, things like temporal travel or temporal distortion, however you think about that spatial 
distortion, dimensional travel, all that kind of stuff have a lot more to do with like sound and light and then the condition of, of your body and sort of where your focus is at than it does about like, you know, rockets or, you know, gigantic, you know, machines, although you can do it that way as well. But I think the technology is all based on alchemical and spiritual and metaphysical practices. And then doing like what you said, creating some way of proving it, replicating it and being able to do it in a variety of, of, of places. Um, but I, I, you know, like I think the earth is part of this, right? Like I think the ground that we stand on, like whatever is there, uh, is part like facilitates what experiences you can have when you bring in these other factors, right? Like frequency and sound and light and all that kind of stuff. How does whenever someone brings up like temporal anomalies or like maybe this concept that what I'm doing now is influencing what I did before and vice versa? Uh, and I've heard this, um, I'll paraphrase it horribly, but that like your opinions today are influenced because like the things that you prefer, the things that you've already done. Um, so it's like, you, th- you think that you're making this decision cause you want it, but really you're making the decision cause that's what already happened and you have to make that. So how, where are you at currently on like the free will thing? Cause it seems like something you might bounce around. Like maybe I would do a free will. Maybe I have no free will. I mean, I, 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 I guess I don't necessarily think about it in terms of free will or not free will, but like, this was like a question. We really started tinkering with this like at the very beginning of lockdown when Michael Juan and I first started working together. Right. And we started to notice like an uptick in synchronicity. And we were trying to figure out like if we were generating them or if we were like magnetically attracted to them on some level. Right. So were, were we having crazy things happen in the external world? Like we would talk about something and then like it would show itself in a million different ways. So bizarrely, so immediately afterwards. Right. And was it happening because we talked about it or were we talking about it? Cause somehow we could already sense that that was coming. Right. Um, uh, do right. You know, and what, you know, and we read this, I, there's a book called synchronicity by F David Pete that I think is really interesting in like understanding how synchronicity is part of like the underlying structure and pattern of the universe, right? Which doesn't necessarily give you this like direct path to like be able to create one or to be able to know one is coming, but that this sort of uh, enfolding and unfolding of reality is sort of connected to, you know, once an idea is out there, it will express itself in many, many, many different ways. And also, when something's about to happen, people will start paying attention on a level that they wouldn't otherwise. Like our, our, our systems are geared towards that, right? So as far as free will, like the only thing that the only thing that I think really is that we have we have free will of choice when things are happening in the moment, like of how we can react to something, right? Like, but I do think that like overall, like we are being like guided or steered like in specific directions. And so it's kind of like, you're going to eat dinner, but are you going to eat chicken or steak or whatever? Or are you going to eat a vegan meal? But right, like kind of thing, it's, there's small small decisions that are um, to a certain extent an exercise of choice or will. The, the bigger question is, is something external to us guiding, uh, guiding us or, or, or steering us? Or is it in some way 
ourselves that are doing it. And, and I, I, I don't know, like at moments it feels, um, I mean, there was definitely a time when I thought I was much more under control of something or someone else than I feel now. Right. But it's not necessarily completely stable. Like I don't never feel that like some of the shit that happens is like so weird. It feels like almost impossible if the scenario wasn't set up or staged or, or controlled in some external way. But you know, I don't know. Like I haven't, I I know there's a big debate about whether people have free will or don't have free will. Um, I I guess I, I don't think about it in those those terms and maybe I should uh, sometimes for the exercise of, of doing it. Um, but it is, it is crazy how many things we do without thinking about it, how much autopilot we are on. And if that is uh, evidence that there is not really the free will in the way we think about it, then, then maybe there's something to that. Well, we've got another three days and 23 hours to get to the bottom of this. So I said, right, we just hunker. Okay. <laughs> and I've got another theory to just throw throw into the ring here. Uh, not even something I've been developing, but it's something that just kind of like makes sense is that maybe more chaos brings more synchronicity in one of two ways. One, if you want to get all like, um, you know, woo woo about it, you could say that, you know, there's like this karmic balance so that more chaos means that more things also have to. But also, if you want to ignore the woo woo part. If you introduce a human to just nonstop chaos environment where like nothing makes sense, nothing's predictable, you will just automatically your brain will be grasping for the first like nuance of order that it can find. So in times of chaos, like a lockdown for multiple years that no one was expecting and it completely upsets everything you expect now you, everything feels so chaotic that your brain might be like hyper focusing on things that aren't chaotic or that have synchronicities or that just match up in weird ways. So I don't even know if it's necessarily like more synchronicities are happening, but like your your brain is latching on to way more than it normally would because there's no other. This is like almost a mind control tactic where if you put someone to a constant state of unpredictability, like seep deprivation is the best one, then all of a sudden they'll just be the most suggestible person in the world. And there's also something to be said here about once we make society extra convenient. So if you imagine way, way back in the day when everyone had like a God for every little nuanced thing, like there was a God for rain and a God for, um, you know, fertilizer yep. and a God for everything, then that might be a very chaotic time. And you would just inherently realize patterns in nature and you would just notice like, oh, when these stars are like this or when the waves are like this, this thing happens. Because again, it's like the only structure there is. But now you fast forward to today and everything is structured and prepackaged and made it like so convenient that now we might just not see even like one one hundredth of the synchronicities that all of our ancestors had always seen. And it's not because they were like more in tune with nature or anything. It was just that their brains were constantly searching for things to make sense of the world. And now we kind of have it served up to us. And we've you know got these preconceived notions within the first few years of gestation at this point. Yeah, no, I think those are all, all good points. I mean, what you were saying about our brain, like reaching to grab like a heat seeking missile, right? Like anything that makes sense, like let's go there. Like a drought, like someone drowning. (laughs) Yeah. Like, yeah. Right. So, so there's, so that there's also, like what you said about, okay, with the lockdown that brought all this chaos. So people are seeking that the flip side of that, right. Is 
like we live in an increasingly complex, chaotic world where there's so many things to pay attention to that what lockdown did on some level was simplify a lot of things. So we were now able to see all of these synchronicities that we weren't able to see before and understand that like, wait a second, there's almost like an algorithmic like unfolding or predictability of the way things happen. And as soon as like some of the chaos and noise and background characters or whatever were cleared off the board, you can see it in a way that like is not obvious when you're dealing with the noise and riffraff of everyday life. Right. Like you can, there's many ways you can look at it. Like to me, uh, lockdown did not feel particularly chaotic because I wasn't scared. Right. Like uh, whenever you're scared, everything feels more frenetic and chaotic or whatever it is. And I happen to be living in Los Angeles at that time where there's just people everywhere all the time. But all of a sudden in lockdown, there was like no one on the streets anywhere. Like trips that would take me two hours in my car normally were taking me 12 minutes and like, you know, whatever. So you could basically see the structure or the backbone or the scaffolding of things much more clearly and really start to observe like what things look like and how they work and where things actually were. And there was a lot less noise, but for if, if my own personal disposition during that time were different, I could see how it would have been the way you said. So I think so much of this is not about how things are, but about how you are. And then it's like a back and forth between those two things. And both things are constantly shifting and evolving and, and whatnot. And that, the, the sort of, the junction of those two, the relationship between those two things is the point that we're really talking about here. And it's kind of like this self-transforming machine elf of a reality, if you will. Right. <laughs> so to me, the lockdown is like a, a topic of endless fascination. And it's funny. We have to like dance around like what words you, you want to say about it. But like the lockdown in particular I'm I'm still just today and and as I go realizing more and more how significant it was for so many people. But to me, it was it just felt like, you know, another Monday and, and not that nothing changed, but it just felt like this is was always coming. It was always going to happen. Um, it wasn't too much different, like than the avian, you know, the avian thing that had happened in the nineties and everyone was stocking up on Tamiflu and stuff. But what's what really surprised me is how many people use the lockdown as like their moment of waking up where it was like, I finally realized that, you know, something crazy is going on worldwide and there's coordination. And, and I, I guess one thing good, I mean, that's a, it's a net positive, I think in a lot of ways that, that, that kind of woke people up, but also it scares me a little bit because to me, the lockdown felt like if, if this were a situation where like, we're the kid and the government is the parent and, and like the most juvenile way, lockdown wasn't even getting grounded that was like go sit in the corner and you're not allowed to listen to music for a couple hours but like we haven't even seen the spankings or the beatings yet and if it if it took you know getting grounded first to even wake up but some people aren't going to wake up even when they start the spankings you know what i mean and when i say spankings i mean you know like when the state exerts its one and only true power, which is they're allowed to legally use violence and nobody else yep. is. That's yep. kind of where the rubber meets the road on all of this. And we haven't even really seen that. I mean, you saw almost like an economic violence and economic coercion, but we haven't seen like the actual coercion yet. And uh, yeah, I don't I'm, I'm not a, a like a prophecy speaker or, or even like a doomsday whatsoever. Like I, I completely resonate with you that while you're looking into this stuff, like don't also 
exclude all the cool things that you can do and like the enjoyment that you've got and like laughing at stuff. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. huge, but <laughs> the, but what you said, so that's a hundred percent true that a lot of people use the, the lockdown to finally wake up. And on the flip side of that, lots of people use the lockdown to go to sleep once and for good. Right. Like I know people who like gave up the last thing that they liked doing in all of reality during the lockdown and they'll never do it again. Right. Like lots of people. Right. You know, and uh, so for like just like we were talking about before that, like, you know, there's you can look at it from this direction or you can look at it from that direction. And it just kind of depends on how you were in that moment. Like, what did that whatever that was, whether it felt like a serious shock to your system or if it was just like a tiny little reverberation that like you barely noticed or whatever, like whatever your system did with that. And for me, just like you, like it was kind of like, yeah, ho-hum, whatever, dude, like, you know, but I did use that time to do things that had the world continued in its normal way, I would not have had time to yeah, do. that's a great point. So I made good use of that time. So in that sense, like it had an effect on me. Um, but there was no moment during that where like I felt like really, really scared or really, really bothered other than that. Like, unfortunately, some relationships broke down during that time or difficult moments came up in relationships. And that's always uncomfortable, no matter if you're a you know, conspiracy theorist or a sleeping normie or anything in between. That's challenging. Um, but I also learned that like, okay, like there's a lot of things that you can live through that you thought would be heartbreaking or devastating and you wouldn't be able to live through, but like you're able to continue and find meaning in life and you know, it is what it is. Right. So yeah, but it is, it's fascinating. I, uh, this, I, I already, I'm cringing at myself for even saying this, but I swear, I feel like a, uh, like a, like a pokey poke hipster because even when i was in the military in the in the late night or in the early 2000s i was rejecting all the weird wanted to give to us like i i went through lots of hoops i got in a lot of trouble i got an article 15 i got a an lor which is a letter of reprimand for like not taking certain like i had to get an anthrax shot because they wanted to send me overseas and i jumped through so many hoops to like not get it to the point where i got in trouble for not getting it um, but like at the point when all of everything started popping off in you know early 2000, like no one had that knew me had any question where what side of the aisle I was on because I had already put myself into like legal issues with the the state because I didn't want to do something yeah. similar that they were now doing on like a, a big platform. So I, it was kind of like. I felt like I had been training for this moment. Like I joked about that. Like I've been training for this moment my whole life. Like I, I can be alone for years if I need to be, I don't need the external attention. And, and that was another really weird thing that you started seeing people, a lot of podcasts popping up. And some of it was because people were waking up. But I think a lot of it too, was just like people were used to having an audience and going to the office and having the water cooler banter and being the center of attention and being, having all of their thoughts validated. And now yeah. it was like everyone jumped to social media and that would just kind of threw fuel on the fire with all the like TikTok and everything, because now I can keep getting the attention yeah. that I used to go out and get out in the clubs, or maybe I dress up and go out shopping or window shopping just for the attention. And now you don't get that. And like the celebrities were the worst, right? They're all like covering songs. And it's like, can you guys not just fade into obscurity for two right. years and, and just live with yourself? <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think the answer is no, a lot of people can't live with themselves for extended periods of time. 
It's interesting what you said. So first of all, I can imagine you would get in a lot of trouble in the military because you always have this smile on your face, no matter you have like this infectious grin and smile that like, whether you're smiling because you're happy or like I could see somebody trying to discipline you, you smiling like that and then just wanting to fucking kill you. It's part of what I love about you. Right. I love your smile. Like I love your jovial laugh and whatever, but I can see how that would create like a level of shit for you that, that what's even worse is, is I've got, I've got my neutral face, but it's like resting like jerk. You're like, happy real quick one, real quick one. Hold on. (laughs) that's that's totally neutral right but but i realized for the first two years in the military i'm a very slow learner trust me it takes me forever to learn something but i learn it for good but i remember i was just like everyone keeps telling me i've got attitude and I, I, i knew deep inside like i don't have attitude like i like i'll do whatever you tell me i'm not like and then at some point i realized that I had this resting like jerk yep. face and all I had to do was lift my eyebrows and I, I practiced in the mirror and I was like, okay, how do I get rid of this? And I found what I had to do. And it was like overnight, I just stopped getting in trouble for having attitude. And this is all on this is a tangent. This is all I did is I raised my eyebrows a little bit. So look at the difference here. I'll try my best not to smile. All right. Here's my resting bitch face. And then here's the eyebrows version. Watch. Oh yeah! All of a sudden, I'm receptive as opposed to being like a little stink face jerk that's like you know scowling at you. One looks dismissive of authority, and the other one looks enthralled or scared of authority, right? And so that's exactly it. Yeah. And and it was like a freaking cheat code that was just like okay. So, anyways, yeah, I I had nonstop problem. It wasn't just it wasn't just that I didn't want them to put anything into my body. It was like everything. Yeah, what you said about the you're you were okay with being by yourself like one of the things that you know some of my previous experiences in my life that a lot of people would think of as not being positive like prolonged drug addiction and drug use like i spent you know many many years of my life really basically like locked in my apartment by myself doing drugs i wasn't a big partier when i was my heavy drug use came after the peak of the party scene. It was kind of like when that died down, like something else sort of opened up in my years of heavy meth use, I mostly spent by myself. Um, and that was actually where a lot of my like research and things that we talk about now got done. It was almost like I had a drug fueled dive into every rabbit hole and conspiracy. And, you know, like on some levels one would go, okay, was that affecting your, um, your perception and your ability to make discern about these things? And I think that's fair, but somehow like I've, I came to a lot of the same conclusions as very sober minded researchers. And for me, what it really more felt like was it, it, it helped, sort of focus my attention in one place, not not an endorsement of drugs, but also anesthetized me to the disturbing things you discover about the reality that we live in so that I was able to continue to look as opposed to get so upset that like my, my curiosity stopped there. And then it was when I stopped doing drugs, having to sort of, you know, come to terms with it in, in different ways and decide like what still resonated and what didn't and, and what made sense and whatnot. But I spent a lot of time by myself in my own head. Right. And whether uh, I'm, this is not an endorsement of using drugs, but when you spend a lot of time by yourself on drugs, 
you get to know yourself in a way that you would not get to know yourself if you never did that. And the flip side of that is you also, you know, are in denial of certain things about yourself that ultimately you're going to have to deal with if you're going to kind of, you know, move past whatever, you know, sort of phase you're sort of stuck in. Um, But when lockdown came, like it wasn't any different. Like basically for many, many years, I was on a self-imposed lockdown in my apartment where I only left to get, you know, food, water on the occasions that I was coming down and maybe occasionally socialize with someone or try to get work when I was in a period of not being on drugs, right? So the idea of spending that much time either by myself or only with one other person, because a lot of times you find yourself doing drugs with one other person or two other people, like that was fine for me, right? Uh, that didn't, that didn't, I didn't feel like scared about not having all that sort of interaction or feedback from other people. But what you're, the point you're talking about, even like dumb stuff, right? Like I, the celebrity thing you're talking about, that is definitely, that was ridiculous. But even my dad, Right. Like he felt that he he felt the need to update me constantly on the things they either were doing or weren't doing, like according to the rules and stuff like that. So here you have a person who um, knows that I don't agree and that also I don't care. And also by that point, I was flexible enough that someone could do something different than me. And that's fine. Like I'm not going to try and change their mind, but had to like validate that they were like doing all the things that they should be doing. Kind of like you would validate with your boss at work. Like, okay, got this done now. Right. It was fucking weird. Like this need for um, constantly checking and validating like the, the, the reality with other people. And, and it was something that told me exactly what you're saying, that, that, that people have a really hard time being isolated by themselves or in very small groups of people for a long time. And then there's some people who love it. There's some people who are antisocial and the lockdown was like the best thing ever for them because they didn't have to, they could just completely sink into their, you know, that part of their personality that like doesn't want to interact in the outer world. And, and, and many of them are not leaving their house now that, (laughs) now that they can. Right. So it was definitely a fascinating social experiment to observe. (laughs) Round one. That was round one of the experiment. We'll see what happens in rounds two, three, four, and five. Pretty soon. Right. (laughs) And also to be very clear, not advocating uh, for drug use for anybody. Although, <laughs> uh, Sig- Sigmund Freud, um, who probably was a jerk in his own right, but he had some really interesting thoughts on, for example, like cocaine, fill in the blank with any drug that you want to put in here, but that it's, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase beyond anything that he said, but this is where I, I originally remember him writing about how he found use for it, like an actual medical professional use where it's like, if you were on to something and you were also tired, here's the risk is like, okay, you can go to sleep, but you might wake up in a completely different mindset. You might like the thought might be fleeting. And if you've got like that tiger by the tail, uh, maybe you don't want to let go of it. So in that case, there are some tools that you can use just like, uh, you know, super powered coffee or jolt cola or caffeine fills. There's levels, right? And a far under that level, you could legitimately say, I'm onto something right now and I want to stay awake for the next three or four days and see this through. Um, and there's tools that allow doing. you to do that. I mean, and, that's, 
And yeah. I think there's validity to that. And it's not like it's a good, like you're not doing a good thing f- to your body, but it's a tool that you're using for like an ends to a very real project. So it's not all partying. Sometimes it's like uh, function based. The I would say that 90% of my drug use has been not in a party situation. Right. And, and that's exactly what I did, whether I understood, I wasn't sitting there going like, I'm going to start using drugs so that I can do that. But that seemed to be the rhythm I fell into is that when I was doing drugs, I spent a good portion of the time doing research. And what that allowed me to do was excavate the entire rabbit hole in one sitting, as opposed to spending a year in the same rabbit hole, but having to like leave and do other stuff and come back and do a little bit when I had time, like I could get on a topic and literally get to the, like as far as you could go with like links and connect the dots and stuff like that on the internet at that time, the internet was much bigger than it is now. Right. I could get all the way to the bottom of that rabbit hole and then, you know, whatever, I might revisit things that were, you know, seemingly the most important or whatever, but I could really scope something, something out. And then the other thing, and I don't know if this correlates with, with what you, you said, Freud was talking about this. Sigmund Freud, I think he was like an advocate of using cocaine in particular as like a, like a professional tool. Okay. So I was mostly during, I I had a go round with cocaine, but that was before I discovered that there was layers of reality that we weren't aware of in our everyday life. Right. I was mostly using meth when I was doing this and there was something about meth. And it's weird because this went for obtaining meth as well. Right. Where I was able to find the needle in the haystack, and it was almost like it was it. My mind knew what things to not pay attention to and what things to pay attention to in my pursuit of finding more meth. In the same way with information, right? Like I was able to very quickly go through a lot of information and decide what things seemed important and what things different uh, didn't. In a way that has been largely validated by the way things have played out in the world, because a lot of this was happening before it was more broadly known about certain things, but also in terms of how many times I've referred back to research I did during that time when looking at things that seemingly have nothing to do with it. But because I learned that valid point there, it was like, I sought that out. That seemed important. My mind grabbed onto it. I didn't forget. And like later when something else comes up, I'm able to go to information that now people would have a hard time finding because you know you have to go through the steps to get to it but if you already know it exists you know different ways to query it to be able to to to, to grab it again and my mind is is very good at connecting those things so there's something about uh the the level of focus that it brings and the other thing about drugs and i don't have experience with all drugs i only know the ones that i've done right but in terms of what we're talking about here in relationship to like um going through a lot of information quickly or finding something that is kind of way off the board generally. Right. And like, Oh, well, look at this, that when you are on drugs, you are, you're in it. Like it's like a phase shift. You're, you're re- resonating at a different frequency than what is your normal resting rate or your normal range. We're not always in the same place. Right. And so your attention is, is drawn to things in a different way. And I think that part of the reason um, drugs are um, so there's so much around drugs, like there's like, you know, they've been demonized or then when they're glorified, they're glorified in a specific and controlled way is because I think that 
changing the sort of your the this kind of phase shift or or the sort of a frequency band that you most closely resonate with. And so the one that you sort of zoom in on would be evidence of much more to reality, either many more realities or many more complexities or layers to the reality that we're in, than it's convenient for uh, people to be uh, aware of on a, a completely holistic level. Right. And, and, and so, you know, this isn't an endorsement of something being good or, or bad, but if you actually listen to the accounts of people on drugs, oftentimes who don't know each other are in different parts of the world and care about different things, the consistency of, of things that they experience and see is evidence that that is something that actually exists and not simply a projection of the mind. Because why would people who have nothing else in common be projecting the exact same hallucination unless there was some basis for it in reality. I've heard one good answer to that question uh, before and it, and it took, and I, I, I remember this, this is a shout out to Tristan Irwin, but his answer to that was they'd have one important thing in common. They all have the same evolved human brain. So even though the culture separates us, maybe there's something inherent with just the structure of the brain itself and the rest of our bodies that explains like all of these similarities that pop up that on one end might seem like we're all touching this elephant that like this ethereal elephant. We're all feeling different parts of it. So we can't necessarily describe it in the same way, but it's the same thing. Or maybe it's just like a, I think what they call form constants. And this is like the classification of some people see cobwebs, some people see spirals, some people see fractals, but those might be related to just regular patterns that our brains use to like encode information to it. Now, I don't know. I don't think I had a, prescribe to that exact uh, definition but it's an interesting way to think about it that maybe that also explains that there's not you know clockwork uh, gnomes out there or like lady salvia entities maybe there's just like this weird itch like we all have got a weird salvia g-spot or a weird lsg g-spot and it like you, everyone can hit it in different ways I, like to the like um I don't know if I subscribe to that either, but I certainly wouldn't exclude it. But even if that were the explanation, right, then the, the, a deep study of what exactly that is and how that is also our effect, affecting our perception of what they say the real reality is, is in order. Right. Because right, th right. that brings into question everything else as well. So I, I love that. I'm like, I love that conversation. Right. So even though that's not where my mind first goes, like my mind goes to something different than that. Like if he could make that argument compelling and we could get into, you know, a really interesting discussion about it. I love considering that. I love, you know, having uh, someone with an opinion that is very, very different of mine. But than mine, but interesting enough that I care about it and I'm willing to try it on for size here and there. And if I become convinced that that's like a more attractive out outfit, then I'll be willing to wear that. Right. Or whatever it is. Right. Or if that's that fits better. Um, I love that. So but yeah, there, even within that, if that is the case, then there is um, some other bit of information that we need to know about what our brain process is and how symbols interact right with sort of like narrative construction and understanding of like linear occurrences or whatever that that would uh, make our experience here seem completely different than it does now there's there's another thing too that 
Um, I only read recently and it, it would totally open my mind up a little bit more to like the, the psychedelic experience in particular, but this research by Dr. Abram Hoffer that I did in my thrill oxide research, but he, um, led me onto this big path where I wanted to understand like what is actually happening in the brain, because there was reports of some people that naturally were just constantly having a psychedelic trip just in normal life. And it was because like in one specific example, it was because the person was eating apples because they lived by like an apple orchard or something and something I think it was the folic acid maybe that was in the apples was just constantly triggering something in their body to overproduce all sorts of chemicals, serotonin and GABA and all these things. And that like just bombardment of serotonin where their body was reacting weird, almost like an allergy was causing them to trip constantly. So they stopped eating apples, went away. He also found out a lot of people that were having similar um, symptoms. If he gave them vitamin B3 or niacin, Mm -hmm. that it Mm -hmm. also would suppress it. And this is the guy that actually is like the father of enriched uh, cereal. So you go to the cereal and it's got like iron and niacin Mm -hmm. and all this stuff. Like it's kind of, he's sort of the father of all of that, but his research led me down this weird rabbit hole where it was making a really strong statement that, a lot of people confuse the inebriation and sort of like the, the the good feelings, right, as the spiritual part and like the spiritual experience. But that the real the real aspect of that that makes your mind open up and available to new things and seeing things in new lights might have absolutely nothing to do with the inebriation and the the um, hallucinations and any of that. All that's really happening is the extra, what is it, neuroplasticity, I think, is when your neurons are able to like connect to other neurons they wouldn't have necessarily connected to. They can go a little bit extra longer. And that's the real part that's making your mind open up. And everything else is secondary. But so many people are overwhelmed and obsessed with that secondary like side right. effect that they completely ignore that there's like almost like a sober version of doing the same thing. I, I, I agree with that. Right. Like I, I think the over time, like my psychedelic experiences and insights have become uh, much more like my everyday uh, observations and experiences and insights. Like if someone remarked how, like when they were listening to me talk, when I was on like a lot of mushrooms, it sounded like I was doing a podcast. It didn't sound like I was right kind of thing. So they like, they didn't understand because they could barely talk. And I just sounded like I was doing a podcast. So I think that's right. Like, I think that, so I, I also do nutrition consultation and have, you know, I'm a certified nutrition consultant and I've looked at uh, the body and nutrition and all this kind of stuff from many different angles. And what you said about B3, like a lot of people are deficient in vitamin B3 and vitamin C. And almost all of those people are what we call uh, schizophrenic or bipolar or have something that we have pathologized as a psychiatric disorder when really it is a deficiency in some sort of mineral or vitamin or whatever. And if you simply give the person that right and oftentimes you have to adjust the diet as well because these things tend to correlate with people having what's called the saccharine disease or low blood sugar disease so most people who are mentally ill have a weird relationship with sugar and are uh, deficient or overproducing of something because of that like over the, their body's overreacting or underreacting or something like that and probably 90 percent of the things that we call psychiatric illness or some sort of disorder can be, you know, 
dealt with just by like, you know, addressing it orthomolecularly or orthonutritionally, right? Um, and what you're talking about, about like the neurons and all of that kind of stuff, that is 100% correct, right? Because when these things, when we're having a neurochemical or biophysical kinds of things go on in our body, right? Like <clears throat> our consciousness is perceiving that, right? But it perceives that in a way that we can understand it. And that is through story, right? That is through story. And when, when some of these things are happening, like no one's thinking about when they're tripping that like, what's my blood sugar? Like, right. Kind of thing. Like, what did I eat today or whatever it is? It's just like, you're in the story or the narrative of whatever it is. Right. And, uh, you know, I've found differences when I don't eat or don't drink anything when I'm tripping or when I only drink water, or if I drink something sweet, because there becomes, there comes a time like when the mushrooms are coming on in a certain way where you almost feel slightly faint. And if you take something sweet at that point, or you don't take something sweet that does affect the the trip in small ways, not like in super large ways, but you can feel that, right? And right now you have like a lot of people doing microdosing, right? And 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 you know there's like this blurring of realities because you're doing all the things you would normally do, and you're under the influence of 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 not only the mushroom, but in some cases, the microdosing protocols uh, call for things like lion's mane, niacin, different things that also affect what's going on. Like literally, I think that I, I had a really crazy microdosing experience. And at this point, I think it doesn't have anything to do with the mushrooms. It had to do with the niacin and, and the, the, the lion's mane, right? And the difference when I took mushrooms with lion's mane and, and lion's mane is also mushrooms, but they're not, they're supposedly not psychedelic. I might disagree with that. Right. But the difference in the experience of taking psychedelic mushrooms with lion's mane and niacin and just taking them by themselves was vast. And that goes to what you're talking about. There's all kinds of, the body's a very complex system and not everything that's happening is because of the one thing that you knowingly think you did. Right. And then also like, the story your mind is telling yourself about how your body is sort of unraveling, whatever that is. So I've been just taking notes on like little tangents that I want to go on, but we'll have to save it for the next uh, 23 hour segment that will continue. Right. This is going to go on for another three days. Here's just, a, <laughs> here's just a smattering of the little notes that, that we'll have to get into on the next talk here, but stimulants versus ketosis i've got a whole tangent on this yeah uh haunted raves i'm curious that the yeah. amount of energy and the amount of deaths that happen in raves are there like ghosts that are still like candy flipping out there we'll talk about that 432 versus 440 in cymatics that seems like an interesting and relevant conversation yeah i wanted to know about secret societies in the dance scene and that could even yep. include like a little group of drug dealers that are throwing a party and taking all the benefits young versus old drug use very touchy subject but there's a huge difference because a your brain's still developing but b you have absolutely no real world responsibilities other than homework and get back home alive versus when you're old enough to have the responsibility to do it and your brain's not developing well now you might have a mortgage to pay or you might have a kid to take care of or like and like it's Two different worlds. We'll get into that. I want to know 
what class and teacher you were in that brought up MK Ultra in high school. That blows my mind. It was in college, um, but I'll tell you, yeah. And then, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it. And I want to talk about demons. I want to talk about Salvia. I want to talk about a bunch of stuff. But we're going we're gonna to save that for uh, hour 23 in our four-day nonstop. Uh, the Guinness people... Just go and take a pee break. We'll be back. But so <laughs> I look forward go, to all though, of those conversations. Yes, we'll, we'll do all of them before we get into anything else. We got a really quick segment. Bang. Hey, conspiracy buffs. I double dare you to take some PCP. The paranormal conspiracy probe on your marks. Get set and go. OK, and Emily and I have both agreed that we've we did PCP 40 minutes ago. Um, you guys didn't see it, but. We uh we both boofed a bunch of PCP, so right about now it's kicking in super hardcore. I could probably fight like twenty cops right now. All right, uh, I'm not going to, but just trust me, I totally <laughs> could. So, question number one: Everything else will be zero to ten. This one is just a really quick question. Are you a cop, Emily? Are you a police officer? Not to my knowledge. Because if you are, you need to tell me. It is part of the U.S. <laughs> Constitution. <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't think so. Okay, I'm also not driving. I'm traveling, so you're not allowed to get me on anything. And you're not in a okay. car. You're in a, you're in a vessel or whatever. <laughs> I'm traveling. Um, so zero to ten, Bigfoot. Zero means he doesn't exist. It's a silly idea. Ten means he exists now. He could have existed in the his- past. And then five is like undecided. Uh, ten. I mean, at least ten or maybe more. Reptilians. From the, I don't know, Draco star system. I guess it doesn't have to be that specific, but like shape-shifting reptilians. Yeah, I mean, they exist. It's just, I think they exist in a different way than people think they do. So also 10. Like, I think all these things exist, but not how we've been cartoonly programmed to to think about them. All right. Celebrity clones. Like, let's say Jamie Foxx. Same answer. Yes. Yes. But it's not uh, the, the, it's not how people think about it. Uh, dinosaurs. This is the one I probably have more questions about. <laughs> um, four. Dragons. Fire-breathing, flying dragons. Eight. Uh, JFK was assassinated by the mob. Two. JFK Jr.'s plane uh, was planned to go down. Uh, planned to go down? Yes. Okay. I'd say probably 10. Like it wasn't just a freak accident. 10. Uh, Prescott Bush dug up Geronimo's skull for the skull and bones. Eight. I want to I want to talk really quick. We're going to keep going on this, but I want to talk before I forget about di- the dinosaurs versus dragons, because this is a interesting pattern that that comes up. So lower and I understand why it is, but I want to hear from you. Why do dinosaurs get a lower score than dragons? Um, I guess in some ways it's a little bit more of a of a of a feeling, but I can't say in my um uh, my extra space, my extra dimensional space, like whatever that is, whether it be psychedelic or visionary or imagination or whatever, like there's no dinosaurs. There's never been that. 
right? Like I've never like, uh, uh, you know, so when you, yeah, there's never been that. And so it feels like a, a construction, like a, like a fusion of a couple of different ideas that like do show up in those spaces. Right. Um, and so whether that would be like an intentional construction to distract or whether that is just like um, the people not doing a good job of explaining what they mean or experience, I don't know. Um, but there's no, um, that never, that's never come up in any of my other spaces that aren't this sort of 3d thing in any way. Uh, zero to 10, Alistair Crowley summoned a real demon. 10. Zero to 10 angels. Um, a hundred percent. Yes. Angels exist, but they're not in any way that they're presented at all. Like I would do not subscribe to any, like, you know, um, like, you know, new age version or that there's like the angels that sort of look out for you or anything like that. I think that to the extent angels exist, they either open up a light spectrum or an energy field that allows you to see something differently. Their angles, their their angles of the photon angles of light. All right, last zero to ten because I want to do some some more detailed ones. Zero to ten, flat Earth. <sighs> like like uh, all of my answers are like the same. So I don't think it's flat Earth in the way that most flat Earthers like insist and want to impose that as the most important thing. I think that the um, uh, it's a characteristic of a much more complex dynamic sort of system that you can experience it as being flat at, at times. All right. I lied. One more zero to 10. We went to the moon. Oh, you, I'm sorry. Did you say zero to 10 on the earth flat, flat earth? So oh, like, yeah, yeah. give me, give me a zero. To 10. Uh, like, so I, I mean, like, <sighs> I mean, I want to say like all of these things on some level, you, you got to collapse the function. <laughs> all right, we'll go seven. Okay. And then humans have been to the moon. This one feels like you can't metaphorically uh, weasel out of it. <laughs> so <laughs> like, um, I think humans have uh, had experiences that they um, have been told equ equate having been to the moon, but no, like, I don't think that it happened in any of the ways that we've been, that we've explained. Like, I think that there's, um, yeah, I, yeah, no, I don't think anybody went in a rocket to the moon. Right. So, so if I make that more specific and say like the Apollo missions brought, you know, us citizens to the moon, then that's a zero for you. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think anybody went there in like a craft that moved from one location to another location, like distance wise that way. Would you, if, if someone was like, Hey, you've got a free ticket and you can go into the moon yourself, you just have to get into this rocket. It's totally safe. What's the chance you'd do that? Yeah, probably no, <laughs> probably no, um, like probably no. And maybe like uh, dependent, dependent on the person, like, you know, didn't like, uh, Jeff Bezos take someone to space with his blue origin, like one lucky person, won a trip to space on the blue origin thing. Wasn't that, that the case? awkward? That would be a really Remember awkward that? ride with Jeff Bezos. And he's just like, you know, are you excited? Is this good? Is this good? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I don't, uh, 
It's like one of those hard, like I'm one of these people that like, I'm a, a almost to try everything once kind of person, right? Like I say, you know, I, I usually twice cause I have to get my bearings about it then to really sort of analyze it, but I can't, it, it's just not something I think about, but like, probably no. I mean, like if you said so, if you, if you were, if you asked me and you're like, I'll go with you. Right. Like maybe I would. I don't think I would though. That would give us, <laughs> give us a, it would give us an opportunity to have that four day uh, marathon podcast. We keep saying we're having right now. I don't know. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, probably no, but yeah, no. And uh, I guess a, a parting open-ended question. If you had unlimited resources, let's just, I guess in the most obvious terms and like money and time, right? Like someone just dropped a hundred million dollars on Emily and we're like, go and just take your research and crank it up to 11. Like, what would that look like? Like, what would, what would you be doing in a year from now? If someone dropped a hundred million dollars on your lap and said, go all out. Um, so probably creating an environment for myself where I can experiment with light and sound, uh, like, uh, like when I go to, uh, specific kinds of dance music events that have like the highest end lighting and sound, the experiences I have are quite fascinating. So I would be interested to um, get to do that on a day-to-day basis where like I understood what the controls were, like I understood what technologies were being used, how much, when, what I ate, slept, didn't slept, did drugs, didn't do drugs, other people there, not other people there, what day of the month, what day of the year is the moon full is that right? Like really start to experiment with like sound and light and like, um, creating sort of like compartments or chambers of sound and how that ex- affected like my experience of my own thoughts and whatnot. Like I find that I make the most progress um, in my thinking about things uh, during and after some of these experiences. So it does seem like there is some sort of massaging of the consciousness or the brain, like that the cymatics or the, the, the lights sort of have um, and not, I don't know everything that the person doing the visuals is doing. I don't know who tuned the sound system, why they tuned it that way, what it would sound like. If we did this a little different or that a little different. So a scenario where I could experience experiment on my own body and my own consciousness with a full range of sound, light, chemicals, neurochemicals, like all, all the different factors. Time. How, how far do you think like a VR helmet could get you in that? Cause you could simulate all the lights and colors and sounds. Uh, the only I think thing you wouldn't maybe simulate is like people being around. So I think it's different when it's something is coming from like really close than when something is coming from far. So I think that would be part of it. I think I would probably be interested to experiment with it that way as well. Um, but I, I, I just noticed that like if something is occurring from inside of me or from outside of me or close or far away, um, and then also there's a certain level of belief as to whether something is really happening or not that um, affects how you perceive the things that what, the, perceive the experience, right? So it would be interesting to see if I could replicate in a VR helmet the same kind of experience not in VR helmet and get to the place where there's no perceptible difference between the two. Like I like that confusion point. Like some people would be very disturbed by that. And I understand why. And I'm not saying I'd want to live in that all the time, but like, you know, there's, would you be able, could you completely replicate 
that which you thought was an externally directed experience into something that was completely coming from, you know, not speakers over there and a DJ over there and someone working the lights over there, but literally from just inside the computer that the thing was hooked up to without any of that external stuff, uh, you know, or the, the, the removed external stuff. I, I think it's fascinating perception, right. And perspective and angle and like depth and all of that kind of stuff. Like, I think that's where the real answers lie because I think something is completely different when you're observing it than when you're in it. Right. Like, I think it's entirely possible that that explains the debate over flat or round earth as well. Like, are you talking about what it feels like when you're on it or in it or what it looks like when you look back at it? Right. Like, and so I think all the experiences are like that. Like when you watch two people fight, it, it's much different than when you're in the fight yourself. Yeah. Well, and also like the sensation of you touching like a big rock in front of you and the sensation of your eyes seeing the rock like to me those are two completely different things we yeah. we consolidate those because that's our reality and our senses are all intertwined but really they're two completely different things and we've kind of like combined the two as if if it's one thing but if, if, yeah. if you were blind from birth for example and i guess this gets into a completely different tangent too but the another cart shout out to Descartes. uh yeah he, he gives me kickbacks anytime someone buys one of his books. So that's why I bring him up so much. But he isn't also it, had this. Like, isn't Cartesian? So like, I mean, coordinates were at the basis of everything. Right. Cartesian coordinates. Yeah. Yes, right. And that, I think this, that, yeah. He's the one yeah. that like classified the world into like these little building blocks. But he also had this really fascinating observation when he was trying to explain his logic for why he thought the soul of the pineal gland. We won't get into that. But he brings up this analogy of a blind man with a cane and that a blind man with a cane is poking around and he feels the grass and he can feel the concrete. And what's happening is that he's just feeling the vibration of this inanimate object, the stick. And those vibrations translate into something in the brain. That's like, okay, I can feel this. And at a certain point the, he's I'm paraphrasing this, this analogy, but it's like, what's the difference between a human hand like that? I can go out and I can touch the grass or I can touch the concrete and just a, a stick, just a dead stick that you find on the ground and do the exact same thing. You tap on stuff. Cause if I take your stick away and you're a blind man, it's almost like if I just chopped your arm off and you weren't a blind man, I mean, one might hurt a little bit more than the other, but all that's happening at the end of the day is that you're just removing that person's ability to like sense in that way. But now you like that was that stick ever part of your body. And if not, was that arm ever part of your body? Uh, and I don't know. It, just, it, it blew my mind when I, when I read that concept, because yeah, how is just a, a piece of driftwood that you pick up any different than a human arm, other than it's got little nerve endings that happen to amplify the vibrations. But other than that, what are they doing? It's like our bodies are like the original haptic suit that are just there to like yes. act as intermediaries between other things and that pineal gland that ha right that like I think that there's something to that. I mean, there's a book that I like I knew about for years but only read last year um that is, you know, lot, most people who are psychonauts in any way have read it's called The Cosmic Serpent by Jeremy Narby and he's talking about how every Everything broadcasts as a, like a, a, a subtle broadcast of what it is, right? And it's just 
the ability of the receiver to perceive it. Do you notice it? Are you aware of it? Right. And so he's talking about it from the shamanistic perspective in that the, the reason like what shamans have been able to do or people who are Tabascaros or Ayahuascaros or whatever is they've learned to defocalize their vision to be able to protect for like receive the broadcast as opposed to like the picture that their mind is making, like the full broadcast that explains what something is. And that's how they know what would be good for what. And that's, you know, whatever it is. Right. And then there's sort of like a, a language that you can use to describe that sort of deeper reception of, of the broadcast. Right. But it seems like almost that's exactly what you're saying, that the, the, the grass is broadcasting what it is. Right. And if you touch it with your hand or you touch it with the stick, like the pathway that it takes to get all the way to the receiver will be slightly different. But ultimately, you're perceiving the same thing. It's just the story you're telling yourself or the picture you're forming in your mind of what that vibration is or means. Well, we already solved one basic building block of reality, and that only took an hour and a half. So I think we're on a good start. I think we'll get to the bottom right. reality and by the end of this four-day <laughs> segment. So here's here's going to be our first break. Maybe make sure you tune back in. Uh, this is going for four days straight. Uh, but for people that are about to tune out and not stick up with us for the rest of the three days and 23 and a half hours, uh, where can people find you again? You just, um, you know, I'm, I'm on YouTube at Emily Moyer, emilycmoyer.com. And then at Patreon, Locals, Rockfin, all the places. I don't put too much out publicly on YouTube anymore, just because that's just like a not valuable endeavor for me anymore. I did it for, when I say valuable, I don't mean financially valuable. What I mean is like the amount of stress of wondering whether the thing that I said is going to do the thing that makes the thing happen or whatever it is. So I occasionally put stuff up on YouTube, um, but there's lots of, there's you know, years of content there. And I still put out a lot of free content and then expansive, very, very deep content for, for supporters in various ways. Um, but I'm, I'm easy to find and, and you can always find me here at least for the next three hours, three days and 23 hours. Um, and, <laughs> and, and that's all. And I, I had a nice time. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to chatting with you again soon, my friend. Yeah, we, we definitely will. Too. We've got a, we've got a punch list to go through. So, Sounds all right, good. I'll see you guys. And, uh, right after this commercial, we'll continue with the next three days. Dive into a realm where comedy meets cosmic adventure. Chaos Twins, created by comedian Sam Tripoli and comic publisher Paranoid Americans, will sweep you off your feet. Join two girls with the astonishing ability to morph into animals, rally with their cryptid crew, and traverse diverse dimensions. But you don't have to take my word for it. Sign up now at chaostwins.com. In a place as curious as Crown City, adventure awaits at every turn. Meet Anna and Becca, two spirited souls navigating a world filled with wonders and weirdness. Alongside their trusted allies, Biggie, Mathilda, and the Chupacabros, they'll stand against aliens, reptilians, and mysteries beyond imagination. Dive into their captivating tales and discover a world where anything is possible. For more information, visit chaostwins.com, samtripoli.com, and paranoidamerican.com. 
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.